Revelation 15. I saw in heaven another great and marvellous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and, standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on, it, on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast 
and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Here ends the reading. Thanks, Ben. Uh, keep your Bibles open. We're going to work our way through those verses. There's a lot in them. Uh, most of it we'll be able to cover. Some of it we won't. Um, but you'll be well served if you can follow along as we do that. Let me pray and then we'll open up these passages together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these uh, words that we've just read contain many difficult uh, things to read, many pictures that are hard for us to understand. And so we pray for your help now. We pray that your spirit, uh, as you have promised he will, uh, will open these words to us, that he will help us to understand them and not only to understand them but to know what they teach us of you and what it means for us to live as your people in this world. Father, help us to see uh, past some of the ideas that we might think about these words and instead to hear your voice uh, speaking to us clearly uh, and loudly. Guide us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, when I was in high school, we had uh, a teacher, a PE teacher, uh, who was by far and away the most loved teacher at school. There was just no one who didn't like this guy. Uh, he was great. He was friendly. He was fun. Uh, and one of the best things about his classes was you could just have great banter with him. You know, you'd forever be giving each other a hard time, having a go, all in a really good spirit, uh, and really relax. Everyone liked him. Uh, everyone had a great time in his classes. Uh, you could muck around in his classes. He would let a whole bunch of things go. Uh, and he would just join in. It would be fun and we'd be able to move on uh, and keep having a good time. He could take heaps. Uh, you could give him and pay out on him as much as you liked. And he would just give it back. He would never lose his cool. He would just keep going. No one ever saw him get angry. Until one day, 
Uh, one day we were in class, we were playing uh, a game, I can't remember what we were playing, we'd been bantering back and forth, giving each other a hard time, it had all been in good fun, everything had been fine, but then he went for a move that was probably unachievable given his age, uh, he injured himself and he was down on the ground in a, in a screaming heap and we were all, I mean, we didn't know what to do, we were just in high school, like a bunch of guys, we don't know what to, to do, we were standing around all silent, uh, wondering how to help him. And then one of my less clever classmates decided it might just be a good time for another joke, just to push a little bit further. And he did, and our teacher finally blew his top. And he completely lost the plot, like absolutely out of control, furious, yelling, screaming. We'd never seen him angry before. He completely made up for it in this moment. Uh, It turns out you could only push him so far. Everyone has a breaking point. We never thought this guy existed, but it did. There comes a point where something's got to give. You can only push so far and that point comes. In a sense, that's what we see in Revelation today. In chapters 15 and 16, we have come to the point where enough is enough. We have had plenty of chances so far. Jesus has come. He has announced what he is all about. We have had witnesses to testify to him. We have had series of punishments, which are God's warnings. Uh, He's declaring to the world that, that, that bad times are ahead. Repent and believe. And all of that has been to no avail. And now we're at the breaking point. God's wrath is being revealed to the world in its fullness in complete measure. Chapter 15, verse 1. I saw in heaven another great and marvellous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is complete. We have come to the full measure here. Full justice will be served. The pictures we see here are terrifying. Uh, They are harsh and hard. But they're not for the terror of God's people. Because before we get into them, we have this little snapshot designed to remind us who we are and where we sit, even as these judgments descend. And that snapshot is the saints. It is God's people standing in God's presence by this sea that is before his throne and singing his praise. Uh, safe, secure, uh, observing what is going to take place but not suffering under it, under it. And in fact, it's the song that they sing which tells us how to understand these judgments. It tells us what they're all about. It tells us that what's coming is great and, and marvellous, literally uh, amazing. It tells us that what's coming is awesome, uh, to be feared, to stand in awe of. Uh, it tells us that what is coming is just and true and righteous. How is that so? How uh, is judgment and justice true and righteous? What does that look like? That's what these chapters unpack for us and that's what we're going to see this morning. We start with that picture towards the end of chapter 15 of the temple of the tabernacle of God, that is his dwelling place, Uh, And from it preceding these angels, holding these bowls, filled with judgment, filled with the wrath of God. Uh, There's smoke, there's the glory of God around them, uh, there's God in all his power, and it's giving us a picture of what's to come. It's it's giving us hints at what to expect, and it's telling us this is going to be big, this is going to be terrible. What is coming is more awful than everything that has gone before. 
What is coming is a picture of God's justice being shown. His judgment against his punishment of sin, not just hinted at, but revealed now in all its fullness. It is what is in our time revealed and it is what will be as well. It is a picture of future judgment. It is a picture of God's complete judgment. And when we get to chapter 16, we see it unveiled. Uh, the first bowl in, in verse 2 uh, is poured out. It's poured out on the land, but it comes against the worshippers of the beast. Uh, sores break out on them. Those who are marked with his mark suffer under this punishment. Bowls 2 and 3 in verses 3 to 4 uh, bring with them firstly blood on the sea and death there, secondly blood on the rivers and springs and death and punishment there too. Now both of these judgments, both of these punishments are not random, they're designed to remind us, uh, to echo the ten plagues of Exodus. You might remember their uh, sores coming upon the people of Egypt. You might remember the Nile uh, and all water turning to blood. That's what we're being reminded of here. But we're being told it will be far worse. In Exodus it was limited to the, the nation of Egypt. Uh, in Revelation so far we've seen the seals being uh, affecting one quarter of the earth, the trumpets affecting one third of the earth. Well now these bowls affect the entire earth. There is no limit here. This devastation is complete. It is full, it is total. And yet what we're being instructed to see is it is still remarkably balanced. God is not emotionally acting out here or lashing out. He's not raging against the earth. He's not being vindictive in pouring out these judgments. There is great measure here and restraint even. And so... Those who have been marked by the beast are now marked by God with punishments, with these sores. Those who have shed blood, the blood of God's special people, his, his saints and his prophets, his messengers, they now receive blood in abundance for what they have done. So what we're being shown here is that there is justice being served but that justice is fitting. Uh, as the angel declares, it is deserved. It is like punishment for like offence. It is mark for mark. It is blood for blood. What God is handing out here is just and it is deserved. We're being told, in a way, to think a bit like how Dante saw hell. You might have read or at least heard of Dante, his book The Inferno, in which he has this weird vision of hell and what it's like. And essentially what he sees is uh, in, in all these parts of hell, sinners being punished according to their sin. So he sees uh, fortune tellers, they're forever walking forwards, but their heads are on backwards. Uh, in their life, they tried to see into the future by forbidden means, and so in the next life, they're forever prevented from seeing ahead at all. Uh, he sees gluttons, those who've filled their lives with the very best and the very most, uh, now condemned in hell to devour filth for eternity. Uh, he sees the wrathful, those who in life were caught up in anger, now condemned to fight one another forever and ever. Uh, everyone being punished according to their crimes. Now, of course, Dante is writing against his own time. He's uh, writing against the excesses he saw in the city he lived in. We shouldn't take it as being a true picture of hell. But there is an element of truth 
in the description of judgment that he's giving. And that's what we see here as well. God punishes, not impulsively, not uh, reactively, but in a way that is fitting and right for the crimes of humanity. As the saints sing in his presence, just and true are your ways, king of the ages. What God does is fitting and right. That is true in his, the salvation he has revealed. He gave his son to death in order to rescue sinners from death and it's true in the judgment that's being revealed here. He gives sinners over to the consequences of their sin. Now what that tells us is that God is just in his judgment and it is that God is true in his judgment. Uh, when we uh, are wronged, when we get a chance to, to make up for our wrong, we're so uh, prone to lashing out. You know, we want to make someone pay. We wanna, want them to really feel the consequences of their sin or of their wrongdoing. But we don't see that of God here. We see that God is very measured, very just. Uh, when we're wronged, we, we, we're prone to self-righteousness, to uh, condemning others but minimising our own guilt or our own complicity. We don't see that with God. God is true in his judgement. And in the end, that is why this judgement is so terrible. It is not because God is so vindictive. It is simply because sin is so bad. What we see here is a picture of just how terrible sin is. Sin is bad enough that only these most graphic and awful and eternal of punishments fit. Sin is bad enough that only the death of God's perfect Son may avert it. The picture that we're having is not necessarily just of judgment. It is of how serious and awful sin is. But the promise that we have here is that justice will come. It's good news, but it's hard news. Justice will come and justice will be terrible. Uh, it's good news because in, in, in our world, and particularly in past weeks, we see uh, justice so lost in, in cases or so perverted. Uh, we've seen the, the very high-profile case of George Pell. Uh, we've seen potential irregularities in that case, potential confusion uh, about it, maybe an appeal coming uh, and it's just it's muddied the waters, hasn't it? Is he guilty? Is he not? Well, the court thinks so, yes, so they, they sentence him. Ultimately, what we're told here is God knows. God knows. Was his sentence too long? Was it too lenient? Uh, will his deeds ever really be paid for? Well, Revelation 16 says yes. Well, what about what we saw in Christchurch on Friday? I mean, how, how do you possibly bring justice for such mass murder? How, how can you possibly, humanly speaking, do that? Well, what do you do without, in, in doing it, pervert the course of justice yourself? Well, doesn't it help to know that God has promised he will bring justice and that justice will be right and it will be fitting he will bring it fully and awfully in the end to those who have committed those deeds. No sin will remain unpunished. No injustice done on this earth will remain because God is just, God is true and God is righteous. Some will meet 
the, justice, uh, the, the full justice of God in Jesus. Uh, knowing that he has taken that wrath in himself, knowing that he has borne the complete penalty and that they are free forever. And that's why they're, they're pictured here, standing on the, the shore of the glassy sea, forgiven, knowing that the wrath that they deserved is paid for, standing there acquitted forever. That is how some will face the wrath of God. The rest will meet full judgment in themselves. And what we're told here is that that will be fair, it will be fitting, but it will be terrible. But what we're told next is just as fair and just as that judgement of God is, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, it's not well received. Uh, Despite it, God continues to be rejected. Uh, He has made a way of safety. He's made a way to escape this wrath. He's made it free. It doesn't cost. It's not not, uh, received by achieving anything. It's simply by trusting Jesus. And yet that that way has been rejected. God's uh, sent messengers. He's sent his own people as witnesses to declare that truth, that grace in Jesus is available, that wrath is coming but an escape is possible. And yet they too have been rejected. We've seen time and time again in the book of Revelation, God has sent warnings, he's sent disasters and hardships upon the earth saying, worse is coming, repent, believe, turn before it's too late. And yet they too have been rejected. And still now, as the very fullness of God's judgment is revealed against the earth, still he is rejected. And what's more, he is even hated. Look at chapter 16, verse 8 and 9. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. We have these two contrasting judgments, the the fire that burns that we just read and in the following verses this darkness uh, which brings cold and terror to humanity And what we know is that all that people need to do to escape these judgments, to to gain relief, is simply to repent and simply to trust in Jesus. But what we see instead is the very opposite. They curse the only one who could help. They continue to reject. They continue to fail to repent. Even as the final judgment descends, even as the fullness of God's wrath comes to bear on sinful humanity, they're not apologetic. They're not regretful, not repentant, not even acknowledging their their failing nor the justice of their sin. Instead, humanity is shaking its fist in the face of God and cursing his name even as his justice descends. Uh, in some ways, it's a bit like how we feel when we get a speeding ticket. Now, I know that many of you have felt that. You've told me. You know the feeling. You see the flashing lights in your rearview mirror. You see the cop uh, walking to your window with a grim look on his face. And I'm guessing that most of you feel just a bit angry when that happens. Uh, you're annoyed at getting fr- uh, caught. You're frustrated, perhaps, at the strictness of our speed limits. You might be fed up with your wife's I told you so face. But you're not angry at any of those things. Neither are you angry at the cop. I mean, he's just doing his job. You're angry at yourself, aren't you? (laughs) You're you're, you're frustrated at yourself, fed up with yourself because you know better. 
You know you shouldn't have done that. You know the rules. You know that getting caught is what you deserve. And you see, it's that anger that makes us change, doesn't it? Well, at least for a time, it doesn't last very long. But it's that anger that, that makes us receive that uh, and drives us to different behaviour. It's, it's a motivation. But not everyone reacts that way. Uh, you, you, you see it on TV sometimes in the police shows that seem to be always on on TV. People just getting furious for, for getting pulled over. You know, they're angry at the cops, they're angry at the law, they're angry at the punishment, they're just lashing out at anything and everything. Uh, but they're not angry at themselves. <laughs> they, they don't see any fault in themselves. They, they, they know the law, they know the consequence, but it's not their problem and so they just keep on going. Their, their anger is directed outwards and there's no change as a result. And that's the picture of sinful humanity that we, we see here in Revelation. That's how sinful humanity reacts to the justice of God as it descends on them, raging against it. Though the punishment is fair, though it's deserved, their anger is not turned inwards, otherwise they might change. Instead it's directed outwards at God. And that tells us the kind of reaction that we are to expect from the world around us when God's judgments come upon it. God has announcement they will come from the time between Jesus' first and second coming. Punishment is coming on sin. And this is how the world will react. This is how many will react. With fury, with curses against the name of God. Instead of heeding this warning, just anger against him. Now, praise God, many will respond. We're told that there will be a multitude before God's throne and it will be gathered in our time, but many will not. Judgment will come on all of those who are not in Jesus. It won't fall on the innocent. It won't fall against those who've never had the chance to hear or respond to it. Instead, it falls upon those who have been warned. It falls upon those who have heard and yet rejected still. That's what Romans 1 reminds us. It, it tells us that since the beginning, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him. On that day there will be no one who can stand and claim an excuse. Judgment comes on all who are not in Jesus. And there will be no one who can claim any valid excuse. All have had a chance to hear, all have had a chance to be warned and all have rejected. On that day judgment will come against those who have heard him and yet refused him still. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. And as shocking as that is, what comes next in Revelation shocks us even more. Because the rejection of humanity goes further and even expresses itself in complete defiance. That's what we see uh, in the sixth bowl of Revelation, verse 12. 
The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Uh, the Euphrates dries up uh, in order to allow the, the, the kings of the east, the forces of the world, to come together and to join uh, with Babylon, that is, uh, all who oppose God, and to stand together in defiance of God and in defiance against his people. Uh, from the beasts, these three spirits that look like frogs come forth. That seems strange that they're described as frogs. It's just sending us back to Exodus again, reminding us of the plague of frogs there. But instead of the frogs themselves being the judgment, now they go forth and they deceive the world. And they deceive the world against God and gather all its forces in hostility against God and against his people. And we're told there in verse 16, it brings them all together at the place called Armageddon. Not the movie, but a place. Literally just the Mount of Megiddo. It's not a... a, a key word or a clue word, it just means the Mount of Megiddo and, and that in itself tells us something. Uh, it tells us it's not a physical place in view. Uh, this kind of battle would be impossible at that location. What it's telling us of the, is the type of battle that's coming. See this, this area is uh, a place where God's people had fought in the past uh, against evil regimes and against those who would wipe them out and what we're being told here again is that that fight continues not a, a physical Megiddo, uh, but wherever God's people are in the time until Jesus' second coming. Wherever God's people are, there the forces of the world will gather against them. That will happen throughout time and likely in one great time when Jesus comes again. So despite all the warnings, despite the severity of judgment, despite the justice of God that's revealed here, humanity will remain defiant against God until the very end. Uh, humanity is a bit like a jack jumper. Um, we call them angry ants in our family because that just describes them so well. Uh, I don't like them. I don't like them because half of my family is allergic to them. Uh, I don't like them because they hurt. But that's not the only reason I don't like them. I don't like them particularly because they want to hurt you. Uh, jack jumpers delight in causing pain. They seek it out. I mean, you know what it's like. You're walking down a path, you see a jack jumper in the distance and you see the moment that it knows you're there, whether it's heard you, whether it's seen you, because instead of running away as something so tiny should, it just makes a beeline for you. It's like, I'm going to get you. Uh, whatever you do, I'm going to chase you down. I know where you live. Stand still so I can sting you. And it w it, it, if it catches you, it will. It will sting and it will sting and it will sting. Uh, you'll stomp on it, they're almost impossible to kill and it will just keep on stinging you. Uh, it will be battered and broken, limping and it will drag itself back to the fight just to get that one last sting in. That is humanity in the last days. Uh, not cowering before God in the face of his, his awesome wrath and power but instead shaking its fist in his face, defying him to the very end, limping back into the fight just to have one more go. But I don't know if you noticed, there isn't actually a description of 
that great battle here, is there? It's, it's in fact a great anticlimax. There's no battle at all. Instead what happens is as the forces of humanity come in this great act of defiance against God, what happens? Well, the seventh bowl is poured out. This is what happens. Verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. And just like that, the end comes. It is over and it is over on God's terms. There is no great battle here. It simply ends. And it's no accident that that that, 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 uh, saying, It is done, reminds us of another time when something very similar was said. When Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. Because what we're seeing here is really, it is the same cry. It's simply repeated several thousand years later. It is finished. All this battle, all this defiance of humanity, it's not finished in the future when these armies are gathered and then overthrown. It was finished in that moment when Jesus gave up his life and died. That is when this battle was won. Victory was 2,000 years ago. That's where the feasts, that's where their forces were defeated decisively. See, Armageddon has already been won. This battle is still to be held, but is already decided. And when the seventh bowl is poured out, that is what we will see. God will come down and all resistance will fail. Look at verses 18 through 21. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. See, if if the bowls to this point have been reminding us again and again of the plagues of Exodus, then what we see here in the seventh bowl is designed to remind us of what comes afterwards, of when Israel stands before the mountain of Sinai. Uh, There there was lightning, there there was thunder, there there was hail and an earthquake and God came down. And what we're seeing here is again the same. God has come down. God has arrived. And as God arrives, all the opposition is simply wiped out. There is no battle, they are simply gone. They are literally shattered. This, This earthquake splits the city into pieces. It wipes out the cities of the nations and it throws down all who stood against him. Babylon receives her dues, the earth is wiped clean and mankind faces the final judgement, still cursing. And all of that tells us, expect opposition and expect it right to the end. Expect the world to hate you, expect the world to gather its forces to oppose and fight against you and when it comes, don't be surprised. We uh, in, the, in the West have been insulated from this for such a long time but the times, they are a-changing. 
We already see uh, public opinion against us. We see policies eroding our values, but more importantly, policies making it uh, making staying true to God's word difficult, challenging, uh, costly, and one day impossible. And that's going to get worse because Satan's end goal, as described here is to marshal the strength of the world, to marshal the strength of governments against the church. It is likely that we will see a day, it is likely we will see it in our lifetime when the state overtly opposes the church. That is what's being described, that's what is being promised here. When the government will not stand for us, will not even be neutral, but will instead stand against us simply for believing in Jesus. But we're told not to fear that day. It will be hard and it will be costly, but ultimately all that opposition will come to nothing because all the forces of evil, so terrible, so daunting as they are, will be wiped out instantly. At the moment of their greatest threat, of their greatest danger, God will arrive and they will disappear. We will not be overcome. Instead, what will, we, what will be seen is that Jesus has already overcome and his people in him. We have won in him. And the only thing that remains is for that to be declared and to be revealed. So endure and be alert. Look at what Jesus says in verse 15. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Jesus is coming back. Be alert for that day. Don't be tempted to give up that righteousness he has clothed you in. Don't be tempted to to put it aside in order to escape the pressure of the world. Don't be fooled into compromising in order that you might have an easier life now. Don't turn aside because he is coming again. Stay alert to the world's pressure. Stay alert to its lies and live for him because in him there is blessing waiting for you. Here's how it's already been described for us in Revelation. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be tears in this life, there will be hardships in this life, there will be hunger and thirst, And many of them will come simply for the fact that we follow Jesus and love him. But they will not be forever. There is just judgment coming on this world. But there is blessing, this blessing, rich blessing, coming forever on all who trust Jesus. Keep awake, stay faithful and endure until that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, great and marvellous are your deeds. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. 
Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. Father, reading of these, this justice, uh, this judgment, is confronting. Uh, it shocks us. And yet we praise you uh, for it. Because it tells us that you are a just God. The sin, the hurt that we see around us, it won't go unpunished. The injustices that exist throughout our world, you'll make them right. Father, we give you thanks that not only will you fix what is wrong, but you will keep us through it all. For our place with you is safe and secure. Lord, remind us of this and help us not to compromise on our walk with you. Help us to stay faithful. Help us to trust you and be unafraid, knowing that you are more powerful than anything that the world can bring. And yet, Lord, we also want to pray for our friends and our loved ones, those who don't know you, those who still live in defiance against you, those who will face this judgment themselves. Father, please be merciful. Please use us to reach them. Help us to speak these words of truth and hope. And may you soften their hearts. Father, let them heed this warning. Let them come to trust in you, to find life in Jesus and to escape the wrath that is coming. Father, for your mercy we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.